0: In the mental health field, we made it seem like it's all in your head. head. The
1: landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. can't have a
0: profit the mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Take a deep breath and just say hello. Welcome back. (laughs) Deep breath. Okay. Okay.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not All In Your Head. Today, what Harriet and I are going to be talking about is the obvious... Elephant crisis in the room, which is COVID-19, and in particular, yes, the
0: obvious is Republican elephant in the room.
1: <laughs> the way that COVID-19 is impacting people's mental health, which has been covered in a few different places. This is getting talked about a lot more in different in, in mainstream news and independent media and everything. But uh, we wanted to focus on a few different areas, and it has to do with the class disparity and the ways that COVID-19 is impacting rich versus poor, the haves versus the have-nots, and to give a little analysis around how we feel about the government response and try to tie everything together for listeners. So uh, Harriet, does that sound about right?
0: That sounds really about right. And as we all hear uh, about that every week, 6.6 million more people are applying for unemployment and not getting through on the unemployment lines on the phone and on the net because they haven't hired any of these unemployed or many of these unemployed people to deal with it. We're talking about A mass of the American people about 20, well, between 20 and 30 percent, more like 30 percent now, who are desperate and without income, while the people at the top are reaping extra profits. It's a very stark class division, not only in terms of class of wealth, but in who's working for whom. I think one of the most stark divisions, and I have to shut myself up after this, is in Jeff Bezos's factories where people are on strike because they don't have protective equipment and where there is the richest man in the world who suggests to his workers that if they get really sick, they only have two weeks leave and then they're fired. But they can always see if other workers there want to give away their sick days rather than I'm the richest man in the world. So I'll throw another 500 million on this the way I did on my trip to out for space exploration for myself. It's so disparate. And so you have a desperate group of people who have to work because they'll starve. And the government telling them they better get back to work. And at the same time, it's not telling the employers, you better make that place safe so they can go back to work. It's so stark now between mm-hmm. the haves and have-nots.
1: So let's take two kind of case studies, right? Let's, let's take Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or one of these uh, billionaires, How do you think they're being impacted in terms of mental health from COVID-19 versus the average worker at Amazon or at Microsoft or some other job?
0: Well, I think someone like Bezos, who I've followed, or Bezos, however he wants to say it, is impacted only faintly that this is kind of a nuisance and workers are having job actions and that cuts out some of the many, many millions. I think he gets 27 million a day just for investments. So every day he hits the lottery anyway. And so he continues to focus on what interests him, his trips into outer space in which he's already invested 500 million, his newest affair, whatever else, maybe another acquisition he's planning. And so it doesn't affect his quality of life. Whereas if you are a single mother and a third of children in the United States live with a single parent, on, overwhelmingly the mother. You are trying to figure out how you can survive if you've been lucky enough to get through to unemployment, with which many millions are not, whether you can survive on this. Also, if you're a mother, you have children who are supposed to be tutored, and you have inadequate programs from most of the public schools, and many mothers don't have computers so their kids can't do this homework those who have may not be have the patience to be teachers the kids are turned off by the materials so mothers feel like bad mothers because they're threatened if your child doesn't submit the homework remotely every day of the week and it isn't adequate your child will fail so those mothers who are educated do the homework themselves and think forget it my kid hates this I'll do it but then their kids aren't prepared The ones who don't have a computer or don't speak the language properly or can't do it at the end of a hard work day or don't know how to work a computer, their kids will just fail. So that people are trapped in awful situations on a personal level, which makes them irritable, unhappy, depressed, angry, and being trapped at home may look like, oh, home sweet home. But that's 80.1% of child murder happens in the home. And child abuse goes way down at age six because kids get out of the house to school every day and they can go play outside so that child abuse rates have spiked at least 30%. Wife abuse rates have spiked at least 30%. People are abandoned by our failed state with a president who really cares less about anything except getting reelected to keep the profit line open. People are living in a failed state. They're unprotected, they're frightened, and they're poor. Not every other developed country, even England, which is often not good on social services, gives their workers, any worker who's laid off because of COVID or cannot function because of COVID, is given 80% of their usual salary up to a certain amount because they know people have to survive. And if they want things to stay open, then there have to be workers there and there have to be people who can afford to buy things. In the United States, some people did get $1,200. That's not answering a wage that's needed every week most americans before this lived paycheck to paycheck and now they have no paychecks and so people are desperate and they're given a choice to starve or to get covid at workplaces because employers aren't required to have adequate protections
1: so talking about paychecks something i wanted to touch on real quick is housing because uh where i live in santa barbara california We've had a housing crisis for a really long time and different housing justice advocates up and down the state and across the country have been talking about trying to come up with radical solutions to solve the housing crisis because it's not where I live. It's not where you live. It's actually a national issue. And we could get into all kinds of debates about what has led to it. I think you and I would probably agree. It's it's just the way that, that you know, the economic rules have been loosened from deregulations and all the, the neoliberal reforms that have occurred over the last 50 years. Um, But I want to touch on one fact here, just regarding Bill Gates, or Bill and Melinda Gates, is that during this crisis, there was a news article that came into my newsfeed that said that they had bought a home in San Diego for $43 million. And normally, that probably wouldn't bug me a whole lot. I'd say, okay, like a billionaire is buying another mansion, you know, big deal. But this, this is in the middle of the crisis. And when Bill Gates is also in all kinds of headlines talking about, well, if I were president, this is what I would do differently. And, um, you know, since he's been touted for his, his glorious philanthropic efforts throughout the third world and locally in technologizing education as we know it, and uh, being one of the many sort of tech pioneers, just like Jeff Bezos, in uh, transforming our entire economy, so that the, the the tech sector has been kind of gentrifying uh, poor and people of color out of their neighborhoods that they've been living in for decades. And all of a sudden, this headline came to me saying that he just bought a, a home in San Diego a few hours from where I lived for, four, for $43 million. And meanwhile, more Americans are renting in the United States now than they have in 50 years. And so we're not quite at a majority of Americans being renters, but we're pretty close And so millions and millions and millions of Americans are are renters. They're working class people that that live paycheck to paycheck and they rent from enormous property management companies that kind of see tenants as numbers on a spreadsheet and they they do whatever they can to suppress tenants rights, to stop rent control laws from happening. Um, They they don't want to incentivize uh, collectively owned housing like community land trusts and housing co-ops and stuff like that. They just want to make sure that housing, you know, and shelter is a basic human need. They want to make sure that it is a for-profit industry. And so while you have Bill Gates buying a new $43 million home, I have friends personally that are getting eviction notices, even though in the state of California that's illegal right now, and yet they're doing it anyway.
0: Yes, the is too. He's a big landlord. That's just what he's doing.
1: Right. And so there are millions and millions of Americans right now that are so stressed out about whether or not they're going to be able to pay rent. Um, and it's it's funny that we're recording this on May 1st. This is May Day. This is International uh, Workers' Day, that mm-hmm. um, that was born out of, from my understanding, Chicago and I think like 1886, uh, you know, massive strikes and this was uh, it was a working class movement that that tried to shine some light on the importance of um, you know workers of the world are the ones that kind of make the economy go around. It's not the It's not the one percent, even though they try to tout themselves as like, well, we're the job creators, like the workers are the ones that actually produce the stuff we need in society. So on that very day, on May 1st, which is today, millions of Americans right now may not be able to pay rent because they lost their job because of COVID-19. There's no clear solution to the housing crisis right now. And before COVID, there already was a massive housing crisis that Trump and nobody before him had really been talking about and trying to address. And now it's, it's made to be so extreme that it's hard to even conceptualize like how bad the problem is.
0: Yes, I, I think that also, not only are people frightened that they'll lose a job they'll never get back, but they're also frightened that they'll lose their home and not for mm-hmm. nothing, because we don't have those guarantees. Kushner is a major landlord and is harassing his tenants. Even if people don't pay rent for a month, it'll be due the next month. And there is what there is that's happening in New York City and around the country is big housing complexes. People are getting together and having rent strikes, which are going to continue until COVID-19 is resolved. (laughs) So that'll be quite a while. Mm -hmm. But we also have to look at what this means being unprotected in the world, what this means for all but the super wealthy whose money will protect them. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, invested in gold and paintings and houses and whatever else in the United States, outside the Mm -hmm. United States, protected from taxes in the various tax shelters that the United States never interrupts. People are terrified. And they're not irrationally terrified if they're terrified it's not because it's all in their head right terrified for good reason because our society is failing to provide for its people it's a failed state and we have to face that
1: and and since you know in our first episode we had talked about a sort of a almost like a priority list in who we were hoping our audience would be. And the number one was other mental health professionals because way before COVID, when we started talking about making this podcast, we had decided, you know, we want other mental health counselors to start thinking about these broader scale issues and not focus so much on the myth that it's all in your head. Uh, And that's why we named the podcast. It's not all in your head. So something else I would like to emphasize is some of the more obvious things that we can say about, the way COVID is impacting people's mental health in general, like if you just randomly selected an individual and you didn't look at things like how much money they make or um, how many apartment buildings they own or their 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 race or gender or sexual orientation, if you don't look at any of that, the the general obvious truth is that everybody's anxiety is way higher than it was. It doesn't really matter what you do for a living or who you are. Uh, there's pretty obvious reasons for that, but just to lay out a few of them uncertainty causes anxiety if you can't if your routine is disrupted you don't know what your routine is going to look like in a week from now or a month from now uh let alone the economic piece where if you if you're part, if you're part of the working class and you don't know if you're going to keep your job you don't know if you're going to keep a roof over your head that's obviously going to cause anxiety but then the sort of the domino effect of higher anxiety also goes along with potentially higher rates of substance abuse and as harriet mentioned earlier uh, within your family, you might resort to using violence when you're really irritable. Or if you're drinking more, you might get more violent, you might start yelling at or hitting your kids more. And all of that, I'm, I'm trained in something called dialectical behavioral therapy. And we have these terms like emotion dysregulation. So as your emotion dysregulation goes up, your cognitive uh, dysregulation goes up. So you're not really thinking clearly. So now your judgment is kind of um, wearing down because your emotions are so high. So if you look at some of the um, mainstream news conversations about mental health right now, these are the kinds of things that they're emphasizing. It was either CNN or um, or ABC News or something like that. Uh, there was a, a psychiatrist talking about the, the general kind of anxiety and de- depression stuff that's getting stirred up for everyone, and they were advising that people try to FaceTime and Zoom and um, talk on the phone with their family and friends to stay connected. And I 100% agree with this. I think all of us staying as connected as we can is going to be the best way to mitigate against the, the epidemic of mental health symptoms, quote unquote, that we're experiencing from this. But I want to emphasize too that, so SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has had their emotional distress hotline jump 891% during COVID. Wow. It's really, really impacting everyone. But the other thing to consider is to think about like who who is and isn't being impacted something that we don't talk about a whole lot is our um, undocumented worker population of whom there are millions in the United States and we rely on them for our uh, our produce, for uh, the construction industry. Um, a lot of the, the women working in nail salons that are, you know, painting your nails and stuff. I mean, when, when COVID ends, and you go back to like going to nail salons, a lot of these folks are there, they, they came to America in extremely desperate situations that are often fueled by um, imperial and colonial forces that go back decades and decades and they came here for a better life and because of the fact that they're undocumented they're not getting stimulus checks so everyday people who are listening to this podcast may really find it relatable that oh, okay, everybody's really stressed out, their anxiety is up, they're drinking too much all of a sudden, or they're feeling kind of depressed. There are some folks that literally aren't even getting stimulus checks. Wow, Bill Gates just bought a $43 million house. Yeah,
0: you know, These are the illustrations of the problem. And when people, you know, we have to remember two thirds of the fast food workers and minimum wage pay workers are women, and 20% of them have dependent kids. So you're talking about People who are desperate, the most desperate being the undocumented, who aren't even getting the meager benefits the United States is doling out. But even if they're doling them out, there's no end in sight. There's a protocol that might make people feel safe. Mm -hmm. That is what they've done in all of the countries, most of the other countries in the developed world. We are the last. We are the worst on this. It's pretty simple. They stockpiled supplies for pandemics. So the first thing they do is close their borders. The second thing they do is test everyone. The third thing they do is treat everyone. And we have not been tested. Mm -hmm. Only a little more than 2% of Americans have been tested, no less treated. And so that there is no... There's no out, and people are, in their emotions, are regressing back to their helpless childhoods where they often had parents who could barely see them, just like their leader can't, and who were proceeding in ways that were baffling and terrifying, and yet they felt they were unprotected and they had no recourse Americans are used to thinking of ourselves as the richest nation in the world and very powerful. And, you know, there is one way the United States is the most well prepared, and that is around war. We have the biggest stockpile, a bigger stockpile than the seven other big countries with stockpiles put together. But the military isn't coming out to help us. And most of Americans have had such a bad education that we don't realize that FDR employed people. If the private sector wouldn't, the public did. He taxed the rich Mm -hmm. at 98.6% and used that money to employ 11 million people. For our population, that would be like Trump employing 22 million people with benefits and good salaries on All these tasks that are needed in our communities, nursing, childcare, infrastructure, better development of solar and wind energy, producing organic and delivering healthy organic food, creating safe, reasonable mass transit systems, creating old age care, all of those things, giving housing stock that's affordable, There's lots of jobs to do, and they don't realize because they don't know their history that that's perfectly an option. But one of the things that has left us so frightened and unprotected is those who govern, govern thinking that government is a problem rather than corrupt government. FDR was big government, and government isn't the problem. It's corrupt government. There's been an ideological push since the 80s and Reagan, that government should be diminished and demolished. And Trump is the last, cutting off the last of that government, that we should have a protective government. So it doesn't even occur to these corporate leaders who are chosen to govern us, that that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. If the private sector won't do it, do it in the public sector. That would be the United States producing ventilators, producing protective equipment. We're a very rich country. It could be mandated, just like Trump wants to mandate that the meat processing workers go back to work, but not that the employers clean up the place. He could mandate all of the things that are needed. I think it's very important that people realize, of course we're terrified, we're in unsafe hands, and we have to get the government back into our hands. Mm. Otherwise,
1: we're doomed, literally. So to zoom out a little bit, Harriet, have you, are you familiar with the term boomer? Boomer? Yeah.
0: As in baby boomer?
1: Yeah. Oh, of course. Okay. So the, <laughs> there, there's a sort of cultural idea right now from my generation, which is millennials. Millennials and what are called zoomers, like Generation Z people who were born, I think, after 2000, have this very, uh, it's an insult, to, it's a pejorative, but when they say boomer, uh, they're, they mean it very negatively. They're saying like, oh, these these stupid boomers don't know anything. And the kernel of truth that, well, it's not that boomers are stupid, but it's that the generation that benefited from everything Harriet just talked about, from all the social programs that FDR implemented, this was the largest set of government handouts ever created in U.S. history. And the generation of people who benefited from it that now call my generation lazy and say, oh, well, millennials are destroying Main Street because they're ordering things on Amazon or why don't these lazy Millennials get off their phone and get a job and things like that Well, the answer to the question of why people of my generation and people younger than myself are having such a hard time paying rent keeping jobs having savings is that the privatization of the U.S. economy that kind of shifted from public to private and, and also nonprofit, which is a whole other thing. But it's there's over a trillion dollars of revenue in the nonprofit sector and, that, and nonprofits are supposed to compete with the public sector now as well. We're in a situation now where most of the comforts that the baby boomer generation has, like if you own a home or if you own more than one home or if you if you have a pension or, or any of that stuff that came from literally uh, what people today would probably call more socialist policies that the generation of FDR implemented on a mass national scale, and what happened a few decades after that as the what's called like the neoliberal reforms from Reagan to you know the Clintons, were, the Clintons were just the same. It was it's just the same old thing. Um, Clinton passed you know NAFTA free trade agreements and the deregulation pattern persisted. Then we got George Bush, and even with Obama, it was basically the same as well. We've had like almost half a century of centralized, top-level government authorities saying that we don't need public programs, just keep cutting them, and let's keep cutting taxes on the rich, and let's just let the business community figure it out. And so what we're dealing with at this point is, since we've, we've gutted every bit of social service emphasis within our economy to the point where it's all kind of a competitive, privatized, you know, dog-eat-dog dog kind of framework, we don't know how to think in terms of, okay, all hands on deck, get everybody a mask, get everybody a test, get everybody the treatment. Just immediately, Stop. don't argue about it, don't think about it, just do it, right? The idea that was drilled into everybody's heads is stuff like, well, that's socialism or that's communism or something because government's bad, government is communism. And so don't do that, just um, bail out Wall Street and give a bunch of businesses billions of dollars and they'll figure out how to solve the problem. I mean, it's literally the most idiotic idea you could imagine because businesses exist to accrue profit, which means trying to cut wages on their workers and invest more money into, you know, the stock market to, to make more money. I mean, that, but we're kind of swimming around. It's almost like fish don't know, water's wet. Like Harriet said, we haven't really been educated about the last century of the various ways that economic policies have shifted in our lifetimes.
0: That's right. And, you know, I think when the World Trade Center was bombed, in 2001, that was the last time that Americans felt like the same country. Now, the people in the, some of the people in the South feel like New York is a den of iniquity, California is a bunch of stupid hippies, let them die, and there's a kind of dismemberment of our identification as people in this together. There's no other nation in which a group winked at by their leader is proudly declaring that they will not shelter in place. We're the only developed nation that didn't require our citizens to shelter in place. Italy has now stopped new cases and they had the worst because they got started late and they started sequentially instead of all at once the way the rest of Europe did. But they patrolled the streets. If you were out in more than one person, you had to justify it to the police. And if it wasn't justified, you had to go home, escorted by a policeman. Even if there were two of you that were going grocery shopping together, only one is needed. One has to go home. They were polite about it, but that was the rule. It had to be enforced. That has been so in every developed nation and Mm. some of the underdeveloped world as well, like Vietnam, like Cuba. This is the United States. Waiting to make a profit while thousands upon thousands of people die, sixty thousand dead, and Pence said, "Well, that's acceptable, you know, to sacrifice because it, it's not his sacrifice, and it's all unnecessary." And so I think what's happened that is, people are in a terrifying situation, and that the fact that they regard that they react with terror is understandable. But we are one nation and we need to get together to protect everyone rather than some sectors of the nation sharing Trump's contempt for any regulation and rebelling against it. One of the things that Jacinda Ardern, who conquered um, corona in New Zealand said, we need each other, we need to be kind and spare each other, we need to shelter in place, which she declared when there were 150 cases in New Zealand and said there were 150 cases in Italy at first too. Everyone must shelter in place. We need each other and so on. And they did. All the countries which are most of them that have managed this managed it because everyone had to the borders had to close. They were isolated. People were isolated in place. Only allowed out to grocery shop for real essentials not like Trump's past that you can go to a recreational facility that has housing, like his golf courses have fancy condos around them. None of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But essential services like food, they licked it. Everyone was tracked. They went around door to door, tracked everyone, and made sure that those who had corona were treated. And now they have no cases. She's waited, even though they have no cases, she'd suggested just into order sheltering in place for another couple of weeks just to make sure nothing comes up. Capitalism has meant in our age, not in yours, Max, mm-hmm. but capitalism was mitigated by strong social forces. In the 19 early 1950s, 35% of people were in strong unions. Now it's about 9% and the unions aren't strong. and Mm -hmm. They too, they kicked out their whole left, and they kicked out and extinguished the spark. So we have been ideologically captured, not by the idea that the government has to protect us and be strong, but we don't need government. Of course we do. We need a government to protect us now, and we don't have one. And that's a psychological terror, as well as the vision of this richest nation in the world, becoming a failed state, failing to care for its people.
1: There's a certain psychological effect that I think has occurred over the last 50 plus years as a result of what you're talking about, like the, from from the time from FDR and also the, the New Deal coalition, the people that the the what, what are sometimes called the militant unionists and the yeah. suffragists and all these folks that, that kind of created FDR, really. Um, you know, we, we have this myth about like individual leadership that, OK, FDR just sort of popped up one day, or MLK popped up one day, or Rosa Parks popped up one day, and all these amazing individual leaders just sort of waved a magic wand. But there's always enormous coalitions and movements behind people. And the movements that that got FDR to where he was, to where the most equity in the United States, I mean, not perfectly, there was still a lot of racism and and obviously um, a lot of other problems like that. But in terms of economic disparity, it was the smallest during that time, you know, po- after the New Deal reforms were implemented for the next couple decades, if I'm remembering correctly, I think for yes. um, up until about the 70s, right? Until kind until of the neoliberal.
0: The 70s, yeah. When they were able to export well-paid male, overwhelmingly male jobs, yeah. cheaper uh, factories in China, Bangladesh, India, right. so right. that right. they could make even more money.
1: In countries where there were no labor laws, right? So there were no laws, all, all, the, all the achievements that the so-called militant unionists, sometimes, uh, you know, communists, socialists, anarchists, all these terms that again, are they're very unfamiliar. They sound very scary to the average American for very good reason, because there was a very concerted effort to make people afraid of these words and these concepts and the, the writers and thinkers from these, these traditions. Some of the folks that, that had really pushed so hard out of passion and, and compassion for humanity in general, who made it so that these social reforms coming from the top levels of government would help the vast majority within the U.S. All these people were kind of crushed in one fell swoop as globalization happened overnight because what people that are, I mean, honestly, I want to say almost sociopathically obsessed with profit over well-being, what they realized was that, look, these people are kind of winning here in the U.S. They've managed to get rid of child labor. They've they've got this thing called the eight-hour day. They're making us uh, pay for their health care if if they have a full-time job and everything. Look at all these countries where they don't even have any laws. They don't have laws against child labor, or um, you don't have to give them overtime if they work over eight hours. You can pay them 17 cents a day and they can't do anything about it. And if we just pay off their politicians and we, you know, we get the IMF and the World Bank to give them these uh, these these unpayable loans uh, that also have all these weird things in fine print that say, like, get rid of your collectively owned farms and privatize them and all these really weird things that also, like, most people don't know about, that our economy... I mean, our own government, which was influenced by big business, basically just betrayed all of us overnight. Again, this isn't really talked about in, in history classes. I don't know if it's it's too, too recent or it's just too painful.
0: I think it's because who controls the textbooks, the textbook industry, the right. client who's in the text, who writes textbooks. Each state mm-hmm. requires different things to be shut up. And mm-hmm. nationally, there are requirements. That's why people don't learn that the Iowa militias hanged any judge who condemned a family farm until uh, mm-hmm. FDR came in and dealt with farms, or so they don't hear right. about the millions that marched as unemployed people demanding jobs. They don't hear about it. Our history is expunged. But in these other countries that have fared much better, they don't allow outsourcing. In mm-hmm. um, the Scandinavian countries, which, you know, have done beautifully as far as stopping Corona. Mm -hmm. If you outsource a factory, you have to get everyone an equal job from your factory. And you also have to, you cannot do it without conferring with the neighborhood representative that has to be on your board about the ecological problems that would follow and the other social problems that would follow. It's Mm -hmm. in America dominated by the capitalist forces that Only look at the cost to the capitalist in terms of profit, not social cost. If if a factory moves away and that was the basic livelihood of the mass of people and their dependents, oh my God, what is the social cost? What is the ecological cost then? Where are they dumping the waste? They did not allow outsourcing. That's Mm -hmm. why they didn't suffer so much from it.
1: I think we should have a whole episode on this but the psychological effects that have occurred on a mass scale from sort of the purging of the um I guess the more socialist oriented segments of society that once were this really kind of firebrand force that created massive change since that's basically been purged out of society for like 50 years this is something I come across a lot especially among therapists but just among lots of people I know which is that nobody really seems to know about like like, how do you get organized, you know, like, what's it like to be a part of a, of a collective group where you you use deep, direct democracy, you make proposals, you debate about the proposals, you vote and you execute as a group. Right. And unions used to be exactly what those were. You, you would you know, I know there are kind of hierarchies and bureaucracies within unions. There, there probably always have been in, in various ways. But the idea wasn't that you just assume that somebody within government governs for you and above you. You're actively engaged within these different collectives and these, these organizations where your voice, you, you, you vote not just uh, every four years on a president, but you vote within your union or within you know, people that work in, in worker cooperatives or if you're a part of a tennis union or something like that. But because of all these deeper, smaller scale forms of democracy, we're just gutted out of, out of the United States. And that the transition from, well, the government governs for the people by the people to, well, you know, big business kind of governs for you and the big business will give you a job. And then if you have a job now, you can pay rent and everything that there's just been a sort of psychological, um, like, I think a dampening, if not a like a killing of people's imaginations in terms of asking themselves, well, how can I get together with like my coworkers and organize or with my neighbors or with people in my apartment building? And like you're saying, there there definitely are. There's huge insurgencies happening right now, whether it's Amazon or in these big apartment buildings in New York. The strike is back, definitely. But I think these are are very foreign concepts to most Americans in that I think we have kind of been brainwashed to just think, well, okay, I'm an individual. I'm feeling some anxiety because of COVID. I'll call this hotline. Maybe they can help me take some deep breaths and calm down a little bit. And that's that's kind of the extent of control that I have within my life, right? It's kind of taking care of my own individual, doing self-care, and then maybe I'll feel a little, little bit better versus thinking like, you know, we need to get millions of people on board right now and massively change the relations of power in the country so that we all have really good mental health. We should spend more time on that another time. But I, I think that Corona is exposing that fact that, like you're saying, everyone is feeling really hopeless and powerless, and it's this sort of childhood regression phenomenon where Everyone just feels like a, a five year old and they don't know what to do. Whereas I think 50 to 70 years ago, a lot of folks would say, well, you know, me and the union are going to go out there and we're going to go on a massive general strike until they do what That's we right. say. We don't have that anymore. You know, that spirit it has been kind no, of violent, violently pushed out of us, uh, unfortunately.
0: It has, because look, to look at the history of it, it's two big factors, I think. One is that we are the only developed nation that has only two parties, which and they're both capitalist. The, a place like Portugal is run by a combination of the Green Party with the Socialist Party and the Communist Party, because they have many parties. When I was in France during an election, you're not allowed, by the way, in any of these countries to have private money in elections, because then, of course, you buy the election. Mm-hmm. But when I was in France during an election, Every candidate had a certain amount of time. So we saw the eight candidates from the eight parties talking about what they would do for the people. You're not allowed to have private money for your own ads. Mm -hmm. Television belongs to the government allocating equal amounts of time for all the candidates. So you can't buy an election. Plus, there's a real choice There's a choice between communism, between fascism, between socialism, between capitalism, and so on. So people want to vote and they want to participate because their vote actually does count. It isn't you vote for one amazingly rich or upwardly mobile corporate person or another, like you vote for a Bush billionaire, or -hmm. you vote for a a clinton who is an aspiring billionaire <laughs> you know we mm-hmm. had a great thing in our constitution in which there were some checks and balances of power but there was no check and balance of money cuz so many of them were slave owners mm. with slaves and mm-hmm. in even in our country what we did beautifully is that we didn't compensate for the slave owners when we freed their slaves we didn't give them the money for their lost property. We took the property. And wow. that, so in New England when we first broke from England, we didn't say you're not a you're not a our property. We're our property no more. Mm. We're taking it back. But those revolutionary traditions were kind of broken after World War II cuz during World War II Uncle Joe Stalin <laughs> was our okay. biggest ally. They lost 30 million people and fought heroically in the Soviet Union so that when the war ended the cap- and FDR died, the capitalists began their revenge to take back the New Deal. Mm-hmm. And the first thing was to call the communist traitors. The second, the socialists were fellow travelers. The third is any other leftist was to be condemned and business was to be praised to the skies as if all of them working for their own profit would save all of us. Mm-hmm. And I once heard that trickle-down theory described as somebody, a rich guy pees in his pants, a little bit that gets down into his shoe. That's the trickle-down.
1: You're making me laugh over here.
0: Yeah, you have the waste product.
1: <laughs> that that sounds about right. Um, I'm thinking we're probably, we probably got enough material for this here podcast. I think uh, so.
0: And also we want to encourage people. We loved your your notes to us. And if you Mm, want to write to us, if you want us to, um, or don't mind if we mention, if you have a question, you don't mind if we address it on the air, then let us know that you don't mind. If you do mind, please let us know that you do mind. So we won't thank your contribution with lack of appreciation for your wishes
1: yeah please send us your emails we've had i think three maybe it's three or four since the first podcast uh folks seem to to like it so far uh if you you don't like it also let us know uh but we yeah like harriet said we we want to um we're we're considering whether or not to like bring people onto the podcast at some point technologically we're not sure how to do that um but in terms of like actually reading and addressing like answering questions you might have in an email that'd be great just let us know beforehand because we don't want to um we're not going to do it unless someone says it's okay to do that. We don't want to um, share people's names or stuff they're privately sending us. But uh, we've had some great questions. Uh, somebody from Sweden, two people from the U.S. so far. Um, I think there was one more. But, uh, yeah, the questions have been great. Thank you, everyone. And um, the email, I think, should be in the, uh, the description wherever you're finding the podcast, whether it's on Anchor or Spotify or uh, Apple. I think we're on, like, eight different um, platforms right now. But uh, it's not all in your head. And then the word pod, P-O-D, at gmail.com. So it's not all in your head, pod at gmail.com. And without further ado.
0: Thank you. Thank you. you. (laughs) Because it's you we want to reach. So thank you.